Well, it's exciting to be able to be before you this morning and opening up the Word as, we, uh, as we've been doing as a church or working our way through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And today we find ourselves in, in chapter 6. And most recently, of course, just, just last week, we, we saw it ending with this incredible miracle, kind of maybe even a pinnacle of miracles so far in Mark, is Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And it's on the heels of that that he goes back to his hometown. So let's see what happens when he gets to his hometown, as we'd expect great things to take place, um, just on the heels of such an incredible miracle. Let's read chapter 6 and verse 1. He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, who did, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and put on, not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. And when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we dive into your word this morning, we need you. We need you to help us help our unbelief. Would you help even as we see Jesus this morning in the word, that our hearts would be encouraged, that we would be encouraged to believe the incredible truths of the gospel this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you have probably read the Narnia books at some point or another, and it starts, that chronologically at least, with a book called The Magician's Nephew, and part of what happens there is we see the creation of Narnia. And there was a group of folks who were there in Narnia on that day, it was just like a black void, and then they begin to see a lion, who is of course Aslan, the one that we know as the Christ-type character from Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They begin to see him off in the distance, and he begins to sing, and as he begins to sing, creation comes into being. Now one of the people there on that day was Uncle Andrew. Just listen to how Lewis describes his response to what's going on. When the great moment came and the beast spoke, he missed the whole point. For a rather interesting reason, when the lion had begun singing long ago, when it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song, and he disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. And then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, 
only a lion, he told himself. He tried his hardest to make himself believe that it wasn't singing, and that it never had been, and only roaring as any lion in a zoo might do. Of course, it really can't be singing, he, he thought. I must have imagined it, and I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Whoever heard of a lion singing? He's trying to convince himself that this couldn't be true, and the longer and more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he, he couldn't have heard anything else. And even when at last the lion spoke, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any of the words, he only heard a snarl. And when the beast spoke in answer, he heard only barkings and growlings and bayings and howlings. Uncle Andrew couldn't see. He chose not to believe and see what he saw before his very own eyes. In our passage this morning, we have Jesus. He's returning to his hometown. And as I said, this, you'd think that this would be a time, maybe even for some sort of triumphal return. The son of Nazareth has, has come home after such incredible things and, and such incredible miracles have taken place. But instead of glory in his return home, all his townspeople end up hearing are snarls and barking and growling and bayings and howlings. They're an awful lot like Uncle Andrew. They can't see what's going on. They miss that the Messiah himself is right there in front of them. Well, let's see how this takes place. Look at, you know, so Jesus returns to his hometown, and then in verse 2, what do we read? And on the Sabbath, he, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. You know, they, they, they were amazed, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? This seems like a very positive response to Jesus, the kind of response he would expect. He's astonished. They're, they're astonished at his teaching. They're astonished at his wisdom, the, the authority with which he speaks. They're astonished at the incredible miracles, the great works that they have heard of. And that would be great if, if that was the fullness of the response, but that's not it, is it? They have some more questions to ask. Look at verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and are not his sisters here? And they took offense at him. What's going on here? You see, they knew Jesus, or at least they thought they knew him, right? You hear what they say, or... Aren't you the carpenter? Just a few years before, he was the guy who had come to fix their fence post or, or whatever it was, right? And that's how he was known. He wasn't known for anything incredible or special. He was known just as the carpenter, that humble carpenter that just did his job and did his job incredibly well. And this would have been a bit of a slight, too, because in that day... The thought was that anybody who worked with their hands like that, there's no way they could be that knowledgeable in Scripture. They knew something was off here. There's something wrong. This isn't the carpenter that we knew. I mean, you listen to the way you speak. Something's wrong. Something's off. And you kind of have to kind of wonder, well, didn't y'all see this coming? I mean, you've been around maybe from childhood with this Jesus who was perfect, who never did anything wrong. You seem like, You'd notice, and you'd be expecting great things from him, right? 
But maybe, just maybe, those words of the Apostle Paul are true, that he humbled himself. And he truly humbled himself. And so that as he walked among them, as he lived among them, as that hum, he just lived as a humble carpenter. I mean, a good carpenter, no doubt. And a very good man. But he didn't make much of himself. He was humble. But that's not where their thoughts end. Then they say, isn't he the son of Mary? Now, you would expect, especially in that day, they, they would say, the son of jo- isn't he the son of Joseph? Um, and he is the son of Joseph. Don't, don't miss that. Don't forget that. He is his legal father, his adopted father, right? That's why we have the genealogy of, of Joseph um, in the Gospels. Some will say this is because, well, Jesus, Joseph is dead at this point, and, and that may be. But more than likely, what this really is, is it's a slur against Jesus. It's a slur against him because, really, it's because of all the whisperings and the murmurings that have been heard throughout Nazareth over the years about his birth and about the timing of it. And wasn't he really born, conceived out of wedlock? That he was somehow an illegitimate son, so this is a a slur against that. And, And then they reference... His brothers and sisters, and don't forget what happened just a little bit earlier in, in Mark, in chapter 3, what do we read? When his, when his family found out what was going on around him, what did they do? They went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Maybe they've heard about that too. Even, even your family thinks you're crazy. And so what do they do? The end of verse 3, they took offense. They, 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 they took offense. They're, they're scandalized. They're deeply offended. He's brought shame to their hometown, claiming all these incredible things. No, we know who he is. He's the carpenter. You, you've heard that famous saying from, from C.S. Lewis, Lord, liar, lunatic. You know, he, he, Jesus must be one of those, right? Either he is the Lord, he is the Savior, he is the one that he claims to be, or he must be a liar, or a lunatic. And the people of Nazareth, they seem to understand that. They understand that he has to be one of those things. They, they, they knew that they either had to accept him and believe in him, or they had to reject him, and that there was no middle ground for them. Yeah, now, now, maybe at the very least, they believed that he was just lying. Or maybe they believed, like his family, that he was out of his mind. Instead of believing in him, they find themselves offended by him. Now, where does this come from? How do they arrive at this conclusion? It seems wild, doesn't it? People who knew him so well, you'd think that would actually lead to to actually believe in him because his words matched up. But I think what the text is telling us here is that their unbelief actually comes from their familiarity with Jesus in some way. It's because they're so familiar with him that they can't see it. Now imagine just for a moment your favorite meal. I don't know what your favorite meal is. Or what that thing that's the most, that delicacy or whatever for you. Imagine that incredibly good steak or whatever it is. Now imagine eating that every single day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It would lose some of its specialness, wouldn't it? That, that kind of familiarity... Would, would, 
would, would in some way lead to some sense of disillusionment with the way that you typically enjoy a steak. You, you, you would lack your sense of wonder at the taste of it. And so it can be um, with Jesus. So we, you and I, I think need to hear this in a sense as a warning. His townspeople, they were incredibly familiar with Jesus. They knew Jesus probably better than anyone. They'd watched him grow up. Nobody had, in a sense, greater exposure to Jesus. And that they failed to believe. We need to see that we're not too far from that. I mean, many, maybe, maybe even most, maybe even, I don't know what the percentage of people in this room are who have known Jesus for a very long time. You may have known him for a very long time. And we must be careful that that familiarity does not breed unbelief. Okay? We were just a moment ago, what were we singing? Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, should die for me? For how many of us this morning were those just familiar words? Words that they came out of our mouth but words that maybe didn't even move our hearts much, if at all. Because we know them so well. They become so familiar to us that we we miss. We miss the wonder that we should have every time that we approach Jesus. The wonder that we should have every time we are reminded of the gospel. The wonder that we should have every time... We think of that amazing love, that we really do think amazing love. How can it be that you, my Savior, would die for me? Because you see, we all, we all struggle with unbelief, don't we? There's nobody in here that doesn't, okay? And your past week, if you, if you just evaluate your past week, I'm sure you can see where unbelief has crept in, right? Just think of something simple that we all struggle with on a regular basis, like grumbling and complaining. What what does that show when we grumble and complain about something? What's underneath that? Let's get beyond the surface. What's underneath our grumbling and complaining? Underneath that grumbling and complaining is really unbelief. It's lack of faith. It's lack of trust in our Savior who has died for us has given everything for us. You see, familiarity can, can often lead to disillusionment or that lack of a sense of wonder. And, and we come here and, and maybe we say, yeah, I already know that. I already know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Tell me more. And do you understand what about outlook that is? But that we think that, that we can say those words, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and they can be just so familiar to us that they miss our heart. And the problem, I guess, is that in a sense, the gospel, in the gospel, there's nothing new. There's nothing to add to it, you know? It is what it is. It will never change. It can't be added to. It can't be subtracted from. And so you and I, our duty... Our duty is, is to mine the depths of who Jesus is. To mine the depths of the gospel. That, that, that we should continually 
be confronted with the gospel and come away from it amazed and in wonder of it. We don't need less Jesus. You know, we're so familiar with him, so we need less of it, so we'll, we'll be a little bit... No, we, we need more of Jesus. Our lack of familiarity, it really comes from just not mining the depths and truly understanding the wonder of, of being reminded yet again that the one whom, like these townspeople, the one who, whom we have rejected, the one who we don't believe some of the time, and that we struggle with unbelief with, that He, that He has given it all for us. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Do do you sense the wonder of those words this morning? I, I hope maybe, even now and even at this moment, they are a little more wonderful for us. we must guard ourselves that familiarity does not breed disillusionment for us. Familiarity for us should be breed wonder and amazement. If it's become familiar, it's because we don't really understand how incredible it is. We don't understand the wonder of what Jesus has done for us is that while we were yet sinners... He, Jesus Christ, died for us. We should be continually amazed that sinners like us have been saved. Now, what is Jesus' response to all this? Jesus is, he suffers their unbelief. He's rejected. How does he respond? I don't know if any of you have seen that new show, Ted Lasso. Um, it's about an American football coach who is hired by an English football club. Now, English football clubs are very different from American football, you understand. It's what we would call soccer. Okay, and he's hired. He knows nothing about soccer. Okay, he doesn't know the rules. He doesn't know anything, but he's hired by them. But he is this just charming guy who has this quality of seeing the best in everything. And everybody in this show is, in a way, rejecting him. His players are, the, the, the person who, who brought him there, the owner of the team, she even brought him there so he would fail, was the whole intent. Everybody is rejecting him, but yet he constantly has a, a positive outlook. He grants everybody third, fourth chances. And then, at some point in, in the show... After being constantly rejected, he he then has his very own wife rejects him. One closest to him rejects him. Now, outwardly, he continues to have that positive outlook, seemingly, with the words. But you can see in the show just how impacted he is by that rejection from his wife, the one closest to him. Now, as our story continues this morning, we see a Jesus rejected by some of those who are closest to him, some of those he's known so incredibly long. And what is his response? Look at verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. 
He marveled because of their unbelief. He, he was astonished. He was amazed. We, we saw earlier that the people of Nazareth, they were astonished with him, right? Now it's his turn to be marveled and, and to be astonished. He's left, if you will, saying, wow. Okay? But what is it that he's saying wow about their unbelief? He's saying, wow, because of, of their unbelief. Now, Jesus is only, in the Gospels, he's only marveled, he only marvels twice that we see. <laughs> Doesn't mean he does it other times, but in the Gospels, here, right here in the story, and then the story of the centurion, and you remember what he's marveling at there, what he says, wow, to there is the centurion's belief, his faith. Now, here in our story, it's a negative wow, if you will. He's wowed at his townspeople. Some of those who were close to him, he, he knew well. Their unbelief in him. And here, in a sense, we get a glimpse at Jesus' full humanity, right? He's, and don't, get, don't miss this, he's surprised in a way. He's surprised by their unbelief. Now, I don't think it's just an unbelief. He's seen a lot of unbelief, hasn't he? up until this point already. It, that's not new to him. But this unbelief for him is especially harsh, especially callous. They reject him quickly. They're offended by him. And these are people who he was close to. And so what does he say? What is his response to them? In verse, we see it in verse 4. And as I read this, remember this isn't just Jesus saying kind of a proverb about how this stuff tends to work out. He's speaking to the people of Nazareth when he says this. And what does he say? He says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus is stating a fact, the proverb, if you will, about how these things tend to work out whenever a prophet goes to his hometown. But note, he's also talking to his hometown people. And the people of Nazareth, they should have heard this as a warning Okay, They should have heard this as a warning. That the Lord of glory, the Messiah that they had been waiting for and anticipating was right there in front of them. And they were rejecting Him. They didn't believe in Him. And so in a sense, this warning right here by Jesus, it's a call to them. Hey, do you understand what you're doing? You need to repent from this. You need to, to turn from this. And here, even in these words, we're reminded again of just that danger. The danger of familiarity. And Jesus is rejected by his own townspeople. And don't miss that this rejection, him being rejected by his own people, is part of that work that he has done for you and I that we might be saved. It's part of that work that leads him ultimately to the rejection on the cross. And then we see some just crazy words, seemingly, in verse 5, don't we? You may have noticed it when I read it earlier. And he could do no mighty work there, except he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. Those are very strong words for Mark to use. He could do no mighty work there. What is going on? This is Jesus. This is God. Of course he can do what he wants, right? I want to remind you, I shared this in a sermon a while back. I don't necessarily expect you to remember it. We don't have much time for it this morning. 
But hear this quick quote from an old theologian, John Owen. This is what he says. He says, whatever the Son of God wrote in, by, and upon the human nature, he did it by the Holy Ghost, who is his Spirit. That is, what John Owen is trying to say here is that Jesus, throughout his life, at at every moment of his life, he relied on Holy Spirit just as you and I are called to. Okay? He didn't like reach over into his divine nature to try to make it through. Okay? He didn't resort and, and cling to his divinity to, to help him power through. He rested on Jesus Christ. He rested on Holy Spirit every step of the way. So this is what one author puts it this way. He says it would be entirely wrongheaded to say, as many people are apt to say, that Jesus performed his miracles because his divine nature operated in and through his human nature. In other words, what we want to say is that Jesus did his miracles, how? Through the work of Holy Spirit. So that as we've already seen in Mark, how is it that he casts out demons? By the Spirit he casts out demons. And so Jesus did all of his miracles through the work of of Holy Spirit. So what we have here then is a Jesus, and this is incredible, who is willingly submitting to his Father. Totally relying and dependent on the power of the work of Holy Spirit in his life to do everything, including his miracles. And we find at this moment he could do no mighty work. Isn't that, it's just incredible to think of. That's how dependent he was. That's how trusting he was. That's how much he was walking in our footsteps. R.C. Sproul puts it this way about this passage. The circumstances by which God, the Holy Spirit, unleashed that power to perform miracles were not available there. It wasn't available to Jesus. Now, still, we got to ask, what's going on? No mighty works? What, what, what's the deal here? It seems in a way, like it's, it's a judgment against Nazareth. These people who have rejected the Messiah and the Heavenly Father decides it is unwise. God, God decides it is unwise to continue to do mighty works before these who have just rejected the Messiah. So he chooses not to act. Now, We've seen all this, and I know we have a lot of passage. Don't worry, we're, we're, we're racing through the, the very end of this and pulling in the, the last parts. But what, we, what is Jesus' response to all of this? He's, he's been rejected. What does he go on? How does he go on? Where does he go on from here? The, the disciples have just seen Jesus rejected by his own hometown. Okay? They've seen it, and by watching it, they've been warned of the danger. The danger of that familiarity and the way in which it can lead to unbelief. And so what does he do? Where does Jesus go in verses 7 and following? He calls his disciples to follow him. To, in a sense, to, to mimic his path and ministry and to expect similar results as we see as we just dive into it quickly. He sends them with some instructions. He called the twelve, and he began to send them out. Send them out two by two, mimicking what he has been doing up until now in Mark. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. 
He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. What's going on? He sends them out. But remember, he wants them to, in a sense, mimic him. So what does he want them to do? He wants them totally dependent. He doesn't want them taking extra stuff. He wants them to depend on God for all of their needs. Depending on Him for the providing of, of, of the miracles. Depending on Him for the proclamation of the gospel that we see in verse 12. And no doubt, in a sense, what Jesus is teaching them is to do like He had been doing. To submit themselves to the will of the Father. And to rely on the power and the work of Holy Spirit through them. And in some ways, what we see here, it's kind of a trial run, isn't it? It's kind of a practice run for what's going to happen in Acts 2 when Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. In Acts 1, of course, Jesus tells them when Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be what? You're, you're going to go, I want you to go forth. I want you to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the, to the very ends of the earth. When Holy Spirit comes upon you, and right now he's preparing them for that mission. They're, they're doing a bit of a trial run, if you will. And in the midst of that, he gives one more comment. It seems a little strange. Verse 10, he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Now you think, that's just normal stuff. That, commentators make a lot of this, actually. Because what it seems like Jesus is doing, he's, he's saying, I, I really want you to depend on me. I want your dependence totally to be on me. And wherever you're welcome in, that's where you're to stay. And whenever you get a better offer by the richest person in town, you're not to go with it. You're to stay. Don't be seeking out your comfortability in the midst of this call. It's not about your comfortability. Jesus is telling them, accept whatever provision is given to them. And this is a struggle, I think, for us sometimes too, isn't it? As we too are sent out, and don't miss that we are sent in a like manner as the disciples are here. Maybe not with every jot and tittle of it, but in generalities we are sent out to take out the gospel. And we're not to allow our comfortability to impact that, and it does so often. Even as, even as I stand here right now and as I just begin to think of it in my head, it becomes even worse. As I look forward to this afternoon... I don't know, about 2, 3 o'clock when everything settles down at my house. And for maybe about two hours or so, hopefully things will be calm and quiet. And I can just enjoy my comfortability. Comfortability isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it can become for us, and I fear it is for many of us, an idol that we run to that keeps us from taking the gospel out. And he's warning his disciples, that idol's going to confront you these things are going to try to pull you in to keep you from taking the gospel out. And he warns them, don't let that happen. Don't let it be so. So he's calling them. I want you to be totally dependent as I've been totally dependent. And then in verse 11, you need to expect to be treated as I've been treated. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony 
against them. Now, this is certainly an act of judgment, but you've got to understand, this would have been very familiar to the people that they would have been sharing the gospel with at this point, because they'd been sharing it mainly with just Jewish people at this point. And as they went out, these, these Jewish people knew what this meant when you shake the sand off your feet, because they knew whenever you left Israel, left the country of Israel, whenever you came back in, you shook the feet off. It was a sign of, I got to get all of the cooties, if you will, of, of that pagan, of those pagan nations off of me. It was a sign of judgment against those nations that didn't believe. And if the disciples were to have left somebody's house shaking the dust off their feet, they would have known, they would have seen it as that sign. But for them too, kind of like, very much like whenever Jesus speaks to the people of Nazareth, talking about a prophet without honor, they would have been called. And they would have been reminded of their need to repent. That it would have been seen as, as a call to repentance as we see in verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. One of those things that's at the heart of the call of the gospel, that's at the heart of of Jesus' message, what he's been going around saying is is calling on people to repent. And as we've been thinking through this, this whole of this passage, as we've seen all of this unbelief, as we've been reminded even of the unbelief that you and I struggle with, that maybe sometimes we're not that different than the people of Nazareth. We need to understand that, that here, right here, in repentance, we're finding one of the cures, one of the cures to our unbelief. One of the cures to keeping the familiarity of the gospel from coming just vanilla. But helping it to continue to impact our hearts and move us from the very core of our being, because what is repentance? It's turning away from our sin and turning towards Christ. And it is the reminder, as we do that, as we repent, it should be the constant reminder that we have, you and I, we've over and over rejected Him, just as the people of Nazareth did. We've over and over sinned. We've over and over gone our own way and done our own thing. And the whole time, the whole time, he's waiting right there to welcome us back. If we're in Christ, he's, our, our sins have already been covered. And yet we continually find ourselves rejecting him. And this is, I think, the wonder of the gospel The gospel should never grow familiar to us that it leads to unbelief. It should instead lead us to astonishing, being astonished by it, marveling at it. As we find ourselves repenting, turning from our sin, being reminded over and over how great a sacrifice is for us, we should find ourselves saying, wow. Not that negative wow that... Jesus gives to the people of Nazareth. But the positive wow. The positive wow that truly believes. Oh, that the gospel would never become familiar to us in such a way that it leads to unbelief. But that it would lead us to a familiarity 
a deep familiarity that has us constantly saying, wow. Wow. As we are reminded of a Savior who still loves us despite our unbelief. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Oh, Father. Oh, it is that belief that we do struggle with. Oh, would you help our unbelief? Would you help us not to ever be so familiar with any words? Words about the gospel. Words about our Savior, Jesus Christ, that that we wouldn't even really contemplate it, that they wouldn't really move our hearts. But that instead, as we find ourselves day in and day out, prayerfully reminded of Jesus, reminded of our Savior, reminded of the gospel, that we would over and over find ourselves saying, wow. How would you be at work in us? Would you help our unbelief, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.